We've got several controlled trials going on around the world with strength and balance, particularly with Parkinson's. But we're also fostering, taking an interest in other studies, which may be at an earlier stage. For instance, in the UK, there's quite a lot of work going on in demonstrating mental health improvements and mental toughness in children even. Those are early stage because once those studies have shown some proof of concept, you then start doing controlled trials to show policymakers who are much more critical that those factors are truly benefited by playing golf. So we're here for the long term, although the project goes on for five years, we hope there will be a legacy so that golf and indeed other sports, because we've had interest in other sports, perhaps copying our approach and showing that their sport has benefits and risks and how they're going to manage it. So we're just the start. And for once now, our leaders in golf, Martin Slumbers, can stand up and boast about some of the benefits of golf without being fearing to be shot down because he can look them to leading international journalists and say, well, it's written in there. Please talk to them. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Mod Golf Podcast, thank you for joining us and please subscribe, rate, and review the show on either iTunes or our show page at mod.golf so that you'll never miss the latest engaging story with my amazing guests. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is Dr. Roger Hawks, who is the Executive Director for the Golf and Health Project based in the UK. The Golf and Health Project helps drive an increased participation in golf, improve the public image of our sport, and increase support for golf in the political arena. I had the pleasure of seeing Roger speak at the recent British Columbia Golf AGM on the topic of golf and health, and I immediately asked him to share his knowledge and findings with us on an episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. So with that, Roger, thanks so much for joining us today, and welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast. Thank you, Colin. Thank you for asking me. Absolutely. My pleasure. So first, I have to start with this question. Tell us a bit about yourself here, your background personally, and also your connectivity to golf, and give us a, a quick overview of the Golf and Health Project. Thank you, Colin. Yes, I'm a sport and exercise physician, which is a new NHS specialty in the UK, which aims to promote the health benefits of exercise and at the same time look after people with musculoskeletal problems in a non-surgical way. So I have a background uh, in exercise medicine, which is very relevant. I also was the Chief Medical Officer of the European Tour for 20-odd years, recently retired, and had this idea of a golf and health project. I felt that uh, we were not actually being able to boast some of the likely benefits of golf and health and was able to get some funding from the World Golf Foundation to employ a, a PhD student and also to provide one day a week to bring together projects and ideas which promoted and demonstrated the health benefits of our wonderful sport. This is great. So and you and I have had this conversation. As I said, I did have the pleasure of seeing you speak. I've seen you speak twice now, including yesterday. We are recording this during Golf and Health Week. So I'd like you to talk a little bit more with that with the hashtag campaign as we get going here. But let, let's start with this, because anybody that doesn't golf, golf has this stigma. A lot of people will say, no, golf is a game. It's not really a sport. And uh, kind of the roll their eyes a bit at this, but let's start with an overview. I know you have an infographic talking about the golf and health benefits. Can you touch on some of the points there for the general public to raise awareness of really with 18 holes of golf, walking and also playing in a cart, what the benefits are for the general population? Yes, that's a really great question, Colin. And of course, some of my friends also think that golf is an inactivity rather than an activity. And this is general misconception that uh, you have to join a gym to get any of the benefits of, of exercise. And this is just not true. 
the aim of the Golf and Health Project was to add some science to the belief of, of us golfers. You know, we always feel good at the end of a game of golf, but we weren't able to demonstrate that to the public, to policymakers, that this was, was in fact true. And the Golf and Health Project aims to add science. And we do that by publishing in leading international peer-reviewed journals to demonstrate the, the science and to prove it that golf has benefits. I, I love this. Let, let's start at this topic on the Mod Golf podcast we bring up all the time of the business opportunity within golf to make it more welcoming and inviting to the people that don't play the game, whether it's children, women in the United States, African-American and Latino cultures, basically anybody that has been underrepresented within the game. And we are going to touch on this because I know you're also overlapping your work into the adaptive and disabled golfing realm and the opportunity there. So what have you found is the biggest barriers to bring people in? Let's take it first, Roger, from the health benefits. Are you finding the message already in the non-golf community, the general public? Is that starting to resonate and get a little bit of traction that you're starting to get more people that are coming to the golf course to try it in some way for the first time? Well, we haven't reached that point yet. We've been going for three and a half years. And I think what we've been trying to do is to change hearts and minds. Right. And for instance, we published our first publication had a tremendous penetration into the media the end of the first year, we looked at all the evidence there was and presented it. And people, I think, were probably amazed, some of them with tongue in cheek. But as I say, with publishing in leading journals, my colleagues, at least, were starting to get the message and to realize that there were benefits. And we demonstrated risk factors could be improved. We demonstrated that people that play golf once to twice a week live up to five years longer. So I think in terms of hearts and minds, uh, it came to a head last year in the Houses of Parliament, where we brought together international leaders in exercise medicine, leaders of golf, people from the world of public health, including uh, the UK. And they said some very good things about the science we produced and also the evidence that there were benefits for golf. But I think your question was, have we made a difference to this perception that golf is exclusive? And I think we probably have, because what we've started to highlight is the benefits of using the golf environment for people with chronic conditions. For instance, Parkinson's disease and dementia. We've got projects ongoing at the moment which look as though they're going to show uh, quite significant benefits. And if you think about it, all sports people in a golf club environment with the banter, with the activity, with the coordination that you require to do some of the golf things, you would imagine that that's going to have some benefits. And of course, that's really good for the reputation of the sport because we can show that we can be inclusive and what other environment, what other sporting environment could offer this. So I think we're probably going to be seen to be quite unique. So the answer is it's at, we're at a very early stage. We've got lots of good science going on around the world. We've got some very strong principles and policymakers, world leaders are taking us seriously for the first time. Yes. And that stat of the longevity of, what did you mention there? Five years, yes. Lifespan of five years. This is interesting. So let's talk about that segment of the population. And you really opened my eyes with some of the evidence and findings that you have in there with golf. Not only is it the aerobic capacity by walking the course or even getting in and out of the golf cart and the muscle and strength training, but talk to us a little bit about the even the, the core strength and balance, especially for older people. The fact that our, with our health, if I understand this correctly, with our medical systems, both in the UK and in North America, at that age, a lot of the, uh, the medical costs are due to uh, slips, trips, and falls that people have at that age. So talk about the impact that could happen as a benefit there of reducing health costs, but also uh, increasing the uh, physical abilities of older people. Yes, uh, I think this was really interesting. Again, at the end of the first year, we, we demonstrated that these benefits and longevity was one of our sort of headlines, but a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but the policymakers, the idea of people living longer, if they're going to 
increase health costs. It's not actually very attractive. But and of course, for the individual, living longer, if there's not better quality of life, can also not necessarily be as good as it sounds. So we started to look at uh, areas such as strength and balance, and to see whether golf had some benefits with those. And the pilot work we've done in Southampton, in Southern California, suggests that golfers do acquire strength and balance, which correlates with a reduction in falls. And a reduction in falls in healthy economic terms is an enormous benefit. So we're pursuing that. We're also pursuing it for people with chronic conditions such as Parkinson's and dementia, where a lot of the, the misery is with balance. Uh, and we've got uh, studies going on in, in the US, in Massachusetts, and in Southern California, looking at people with Parkinson's and dementia to see whether we get benefits in uh, strength and balance in those populations. Interesting. Well, I, I have seen that firsthand at the PGA show last year. I did interview a gentleman who is suffering from, actually one suffering from Parkinson's, another one from MS, and just playing golf every single day, how it's changed their life. It hasn't necessarily stopped what they've been inflicted with, but it's slowed it down hasn't quite stopped it, but they've actually seen in other areas physically how it has benefited them. And I've seen that and seen them hit golf balls and it's incredible. Yes. It does have that direct correlation. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to touch on, and you started to delve into this a bit there, Roger, is especially with older folks and also people that are afflicted with medical ailments, is the mental health side of this. As far as, as you mentioned, enjoying a better quality of life, it's not just longer, but actually it's the quality of that. Because as we know, especially older people suffering from loneliness and isolation and people that have physical disabilities also fall in that category quite often. So you can talk to us a bit about what you've experienced as far as how golf can benefit the mental health side of our society. Yes. Well, we've demonstrated that golf is accepted as a moderately intense physical activity. And with that, there are a number of benefits, including prevention of mental health conditions such as depression. Uh, interestingly, though, I think when we first started, we were looking at mental health and well-being and more physical benefits. But the social side, I hadn't appreciated until recent studies, which have shown that uh, in any seven-year period in older adults, that lack of social interaction is the biggest risk factor for death in that period, bigger than uh, smoking, bigger than high cholesterol, high blood pressure. So social interaction, which of course is one of the tenets of golf and golf clubs, is something that the we're only just starting to look into, but is likely to be a very much bigger factor than we initially thought. Yes. So so let's take a step back. You did mention you're about three, three and a half years in, in really it's the data collection phase that you're in, if that's correct, rather than seeing how you can activate this and apply it in, in certain areas. Is that fair to say as far as where you are? Yes. Well, as I say, what we're trying to do is to deliver high-class science to policymakers and to the world so that it isn't just us saying, yeah, golf seems to be good. We've got some actually scientific credibility with what we're saying. So we're obviously at a phase that hasn't quite proven it. We've got pilot work suggests strength and balance is, is benefited, but we haven't got the definitive answers yet on those. We haven't got the definitive answers on some of the mental health questions. We think that golf is good for people with dementia, the whole golf club environment. But we're doing some evaluation of that. And again, our um, philosophy is to publish it in leading journals. So there's no argument whether it's true or not. So yeah, we're, we're nicely poised during this last period to present some, some almost facts 
that we hope will influence policymakers, particularly in countries that where golf isn't particularly big, and get them to get policymakers to invest in this sport. Right. And I take it currently you don't have either the funding or even perhaps the mandate at this stage to test some of these things in the sense of, let's say, go into a senior's home and do some A-B testing. So take a group of people and introduce them to golf at whatever level and then measure against where they were over time to see if there's any improvement. Are those studies other people are, are doing that you can then rely on? Or is that something that you want to do once you actually get more funding with your sponsor partners? Yes, we have a number of different studies doing that, but that's the first stage. Right. What that doesn't do is to prove that that intervention actually was benefited by the golf. What you do need to do is to have control groups. Of course, once you get into control groups, that's much more complicated. We've got several controlled trials going on around the world with strength and balance, particularly with Parkinson's and older people. So those studies are happening at the moment, but uh, we're also fostering, taking an interest in other studies, which may be at an earlier stage. For instance, in the UK, there's quite a lot of work going on in demonstrating mental health improvements and mental toughness in children even. Those are early stage because once those studies have shown some proof of concept, you then start doing controlled trials to show policymakers who are much more critical that those factors are truly benefited by playing golf. So as I say, we're here for the long term, although the project goes on for five years, we hope there will be a legacy so that golf and indeed other sports, because we've had interest in other sports, perhaps copying our approach and showing that their sport has benefits and risks and how they're going to manage it. So we're just the start. And as I say, for once now, our leaders in golf, Martin Slummers, can stand up and boast about some of the benefits of golf without being fearing to be shot down because he can look then to leading international journals and say, well, it's written in there. Please talk to them. Yes. And you talk about the others that can boast on your behalf there. Can you tell us a bit more about the sponsorships, the partnerships you have both with the World Golf Foundation and Steve Mona, who we've had on the podcast before, and also with the European Tour? Can you talk to that a bit? Yes, yes. Well, of course, I was working with the European Tour when this idea first hit. It was with the help of Georgia Grady, the previous chief exec, and to the RNA, who took this on and thought it was a good idea, eventually taking it to the World Golf Foundation, which is a meeting of the top six organizations in golf around the world. And I'm pleased to say that they thought it had merit enough to fund the PhD over five years and for my time for a day a week to actually do the work which I've described in this podcast. So that's the, the financial arrangement. Of course, we have the might of the comms and media from all those organizations. Uh, so the Golf and Health Week, which we're just in the middle of, when it happens, uh, means that we get quite a lot of penetration into the market and we're able to show off what we're doing. And that's why a lot of the people who are doing work in this area up until now, doing it on their own, have come to us and said, look, can we involve them? And we've been able to sort of help guide them and bring them on board so that they get the media coverage, which we're experiencing at the moment. Yes. So... So let's talk about Golf and Health Week and that hashtag campaign. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I'll be honest, it's the first time I've heard about it only a couple of weeks ago. Is this the first year that's happened or has it been going for a few years now and getting more traction as you go? Can you, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I think that's a, a very significant point is that there's never been a previous Golf and Health Week because I'm sure that there was a lack of confidence to, it to actually start to make any boasts on benefits. So this is the very first year. It's been coordinated by the RNA in Scotland, but it's involving all the home unions. And of course, I've been here in Canada and have been promoting it to BC Golf. And each day we have a special area and we highlight it and we use all the modern comms, Twitter, etc. to put this uh, information out. 
And the idea is for people eventually to see golf as a health-enhancing physical activity and for governments to accept that golf is a health-enhancing physical activity and along with walking and other forms of physical activity, it will be part of the recommendations that governments give to their populations as one of the options on keeping good public health. Yes. I, I don't want everyone in the world to play golf. I want to be able to play on a Saturday morning without having to queue up. So I'm not evangelical about golf. But if people look over my shoulder and say, well, if golfers can get a benefit, perhaps I'll take the dog for a walk a bit more, that will be success in, in my book as well. Right. And on that note, with the traditional 18-hole golf experience that you and I both love so much, but there are lots of other experiences out there calling off-course golf experiences now. Is that something that you're also promoting as that gateway? Or even if someone just gets out and puts the ball and chips a little bit, that we're calling that golf, that that is a golf experience and that actually has benefits also. Exactly. Golf is golf. It isn't just the 18-hole experience. As you say, at the moment, you and I enjoy that 18-hole experience. If we had a chronic condition which didn't allow us to do that, I'd like to think that we could still share the social experience of being at a golf club and uh, to be able to get out and into the green space. But also speed golf might suit people who have an aptitude for going fast and other activities, which I know that you've been involved with, which bring golf to the attention of the public. Yes. There seems to be something magical about having a club whacking something and seeing it move ahead. And when you see certain people with intellectual disorders, the pleasure they get in doing perhaps what you and I would think of as a fairly minor task of just connecting with the ball, it's a, it's a wonderful feeling. And I think everyone should be able to experience it. There is great opportunity, business opportunity, if nothing else. There's a great opportunity for us to have the most inclusive of all sports by bringing these all to the fore. Absolutely. And I also had the pleasure, the honor to be at the USA Special Olympics last year where I covered the golf event there. And the majority of the athletes there were all in the autistic spectrum. And some were low handicappers, very competitive. But the ones that really resonated with me that I gravitated towards were the ones that only were chipping and putting and not being able to play that full round of golf. And just the joy it brought to their lives and the people around them and the connectivity was un- unbelievable. Yeah. So let's switch gears a bit because I do want you to talk about that because I know you, you also are working in this area too, not just in psychological challenges that people have, but also physical challenges and disabled golfers. Yes. So talk a bit about that. And also you did mention the other day about that economic benefit of the numbers yeah. of how many people out there that you can introduce to the game. I find that quite fascinating. Yes, yes. Well, I'm afraid these are European figures, but we have a population of about 740 million people in Europe. We know that one in seven people have a disability. We know that about 0.6% of the European population play golf. Well, if even 0.3% of the disabled population were introduced to golf, that would be a figure of over 300,000 people. And I was suggesting if we just brought 300,000 people into the game, it would be a great business opportunity, if nothing else. Uh, Absolutely. And we've talked about that also, the multi-billion dollar business opportunity by unlocking the opportunity of the underserved market of women and other groups that I also mentioned earlier. Yes. It just makes great business sense. Absolutely. And that's how you really grow the game and evolve the game and make it more relevant and make it look like Canada looks, make it look how the UK looks. Yes. It represents our society. And right now we're not quite there, but a lot of programs are in place that that's changing, which is really positive. Yes. Well, disabled people are less active, considerably less active than the general population. And the general population is is inactive. So the actual benefit of getting people active, playing golf is one of the options. One of the benefits of getting disabled people actually active is even greater than uh, with the able-bodied population. Uh, Absolutely. So just want to come back to the partnerships you have. So you did mention the RNA also, and I know with the World Golf Foundation and the European Tour. 
so you're focusing on the studies in the UK right now, because that's, of course, that makes complete sense. Is there a similar study in parallel being done in the United States that's either through the USGA or the PGA of America? Or is that something you're looking to partner with? Or are they looking at what you're doing as a pilot that they can then expand and perhaps apply that to the US population? No, I, I, mean, I think we're a, a global project already. We've got uh, work happening in Southern California. We've got work going on in Chicago. We've got some work going on in Florida. We've got work going on in Australia, looking at why people play golf and why they carry on playing golf and looking at their health status. So I think we are truly global already. Obviously, it's a relatively small project, but I think we're hopefully being seen to be fighting above our weight because, as I say, with the comms for those organizations that make up the World Golf Foundation, we've managed to find people doing interesting work and, as I say, get them on board with our philosophy and principles and get the messages and the information and the results that they're producing out there. And you speak about getting the messages and information out there. Uh, I did see that the British Journal of Sport Medicine did publish not only your infographic, but a lot of your findings already. So the fact you're actually getting out of that golf realm and into the greater population of awareness, that's got to be a great validator for what you're doing to help amplify the message for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the quite by coincidence, the editor of the British Journal of Sports Medicine is a professor here in Vancouver. And uh, I met him twice during this time I've been in Vancouver. And he, he said some very good things. He said oh, the science that we're producing is good. I mean, it wouldn't be published. This is the leading international journal. This has the highest impact factor of any journal in, it, in that topic. So we're really pleased to have been able to provide decent science, which, uh, as I say, eventually will get out there and change some hearts and minds, hopefully. Absolutely. And I'm assuming as a medical doctor yourself, that within your colleagues within the profession, just to raise awareness of the benefits and having that, hopefully that trickle down effect over yes. time that rather than prescribing a pill that perhaps they'll prescribe putting a golf club in someone's hand. Yes, definitely. Well, the sport and exercise mentioned is all about uh, the role of exercise in health. But I think, as you say, up until now, golf was in a bit of a backwater. But we've demonstrated with our high performance publications that uh, we claim the wrist as our joint. And we've been able to do lots of work on training doctors to understand the wrist much better, because that's a problem we get with our high performance players. But also now that uh, they're starting to see golf as a health enhancing physical activity. And it's almost accepted, I, I believe, when I go into a room now, I'm not looked at as being, well, is golf a sport? And I certainly don't have that slide. I used to have with all my lectures demonstrating how I thought golf was a sport. I don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> well, that's great. And not to name names here in Vancouver, but you were at an event yesterday that I was at also. And we keep bumping up against that public perception that golf is elitist and it's not for everybody. And sure enough, golf has had to do a better job of conveying that message and yourself and others are now doing a better job. Yes. I like to think I'm part of the community that's helping with that. Absolutely. But we still have to kind of break through that. I know certain leaders of certain countries that play golf are not helping the uh, the, <laughs> the image of our <laughs> sports, but yeah. the work that you're doing is certainly making golf more inviting and more welcoming to people that traditionally would not even look at that as an option for physical and mental health benefits. Yes, I think slow and steady wins the race. We're not, we're not doing anything spectacular, but we're doing it very comprehensively. We're doing it properly. At the end of the day, I hope we'll be rewarded. But so far, so good. We are changing some hearts and minds. There's some people in the Department of Health in London who said that they would never even dreamt of golf being of any benefit exclusive domain as middle-aged rich men drinking and eating too much. I can now say that those same people are saying some very positive things about our sport. 
So we've just got to carry on and we've got to have the messages to get out there. Absolutely. And consistency is the key here, just to be uh, unrelentingly positive and keep telling that story and uh, letting people know the message. So that's great. So, hey, I I know you got a busy day ahead of you here, so I will let you go. So before I do, can you tell us where our listeners can find out more information, both on social media and also your website with the Golf and Health Project? Yes, we have a website, golfandhealth.org, www.golfandhealth.org. We have a lot of information on that. We have Twitter feed and also the Golf and Health Week is a hashtag Golf Health Week. And you can find out lots of information about the activities from around the world using that. Great stuff. And I'm assuming that with that campaign, with the hashtag with Golf and Health Week will be an annual recurrence now, I'm hoping. Well, possibly. I mean, this this was something that, that came about uh, and the RNA said that they wanted to do something in, in this area. And I can't see any reason why, with the success it's had, that they shouldn't do this on, on an annual basis. Yes, we're looking forward to it. Makes sense to me. So uh, as I always do for our listeners, I will include in the show notes on the page all of the links that Dr. Hawks had just mentioned and also some images there also of the fine work, including the infographic that you had in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, which is really helpful. So I'll include that too. So Dr. Roger Hawks, Executive Director for the Golf and Health Project. Great to talk to you again. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today on the Mod Golf Podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. You're welcome. All right. We'll talk very soon. Bye. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Roger Hawks, Executive Director for the Golf and Health Project. I'd love to hear what you found interesting and useful in this episode. So please share your thoughts by emailing me at colin at modgolfpodcast.com, and I promise to get back to you. If you'd like to learn more about the collaborative, innovative, and inclusive work Roger, the RNA, and the World Golf Foundation are spearheading in the area of golf and fitness, go to our episode show page where we've included links and photos to provide you with additional content. I'd like to extend my gratitude and thanks to our sponsor partners, British Columbia Golf and Nextlinks, for helping make the Mod Golf podcast happen. And I also want to send a big welcome to our newest sponsor partner, Golf Genius Software. Without their support, I wouldn't be able to bring you these engaging stories from the golf industry's brightest innovators and influencers. Are you a golf course owner or operator struggling with the complexities of running tournaments? Do you want to spend less time running them while increasing revenue and profit margins? Check out our friends at Golf Genius to learn how they can help make the magic happen at golfgenius.com. Please join me next time when I speak with Gina Rizzi, who is the founder and principal of Radius Sports Group, which is passionately focused on the intersection of sport and sustainability. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more of our innovation stories on previous episodes at mod.golf or search Mod Golf Podcast or iTunes. And please rate, review, and subscribe to the show while you're there. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks very much for joining me. Bye for now.